Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Welcome to this week's episode of the TLS podcast. I'm Fiona Narduzzi, an editor here at the TLS, and Lucy Dallas, our arts editor, is with me as usual. How are you, Lucy? I'm all right, thank you. Looking at the rain, which I think many of us are doing today. Yeah, can you hear it? It's thundering down on my on my roof here. I can't hear I'm it. I'm sure the mic can pick it on up. On your roof. It's very atmospheric. <laughs> it's very atmospheric where I am, <laughs> but obviously it's not carrying forward for you. No, we just imagine it. Um, what's new, Lucy? Well, other than the rain... That's not new. It's, it's never ending. No, I know, no, you're right. It's the <laughs> oldest. Um, another new word, if you will indulge me, which I got from the Times Literary Supplement, would you believe, <laughs> from NB, our back page column. And he was talking about the Nobel Prize. And he was describing the, the board in Stockholm and he calls them the Amaranthine Mandarinate, which, first of all, is just a brilliant phrase and nice to say and I didn't know about amaranthine the only thing I knew about it was uh, about amaranth the plant and amaranthine or amaranthine I'm not sure it turns out means unending undying immortal as well as pertaining to the actual plant that we know now and also purplish or reddish which is the color of an amaranth and it's just a really interesting Word. Well, it's it's interesting as you, exactly as you say because it, it's both mythical and real. Yeah, and I'm I'm able to to tell you that I've eaten it, <laughs> not the plant, but the grain, which amounts to the same. The grain. Yeah, you can eat the grain. Um, it's a really big part of pre-Hispanic cooking. So in Mexico, uh, it's still used quite a lot. There's a snack food which is popular called alegría. They would take the grain and I think they would sort of toast it in a in a pan or, or some kind of you know on some mm. kind of surface, hot surface, and uh, and then they'd mix it with honey, uh, and now they sort of they pack it into bars. Nice. So it's you know it's a portable snack, and it's it's yeah I've I've had it. It's very it's very tasty. It's very sweet. Or the ones I had were anyway. But it's really 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 rich in protein. Is it? And uh, yeah, and tannins. It's really it's got a really really high nutritional values. I think it's called um I mean on a slightly lower note it's called pigweed because it was also used oh. to, to feed pigs well, that's not as nice as amaranth <laughs> from amaranth to pig to pigweed because i grow it i didn't mean to i thought it was something else oh, right. and i grew it and i just kept it because it was so beautiful because it's an amazing amazing color and it i is. couldn't work out whether because the ancients talk about it i think is it i think pliny talks about amaranth and the, we don't know whether he was talking about the an actual plant or the idea of because the word means un, undying unfading yeah yeah in greek except they've put anthos in there because it's it would be amaranthos but anthos means flower so it kind of when you put them together it works and i didn't know whether it was they had it was a it's a symbolic flower that lasts forever or they just meant the amaranth because it keeps its colour mm. for a long time. And apparently it was a symbol of, of immortality. Right. Though not, it, confusingly, not the version with the grain in that, you're, that we were talking about. No, 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 no. There's, there must be another version, which is also purple. So it's just got an awful lot because, and it was sacred to Artemis, apparently. Right. And Pliny said, make, make chaplets with it. So if anyone wants to make chaplets this week, <laughs> I would suggest you use amaranth. And just take photos and send them in. Yeah, why not? <laughs> um, well, coming up on this week's show, in a bit we'll be joined by the novelist, poet and essayist Will Eves 
to discuss his beautiful searching study of Homer's Odyssey and the nature of memory. But first, we are stopping with you, aren't we, Lucy? We're stopping with your arts pages. Yes, we are, because Judith Flanders has written us a lovely piece about dance online and how you experience it. We've discussed in the TLS and on the podcast the plight of the performing arts in these times of pandemic, and there are now attempts to bring some live arts back for the benefit of the practitioners and their audiences. But performances have still remained mostly online, and we've talked about music, opera, theatre and art, but what about dance? How does it or can it work? Um, Here to talk to us about recent offerings from the world of ballet and modern dance is Judith Flanders. Judith, many thanks for talking to us. Nice to be here. Um, Can you tell us, uh, first of all, which uh, dance companies you looked at and what what they were offering? Well, there were two big offerings online this past week. One was the Akram Khan Company, which is marking its 20th anniversary. And one was the Royal Ballet, which actually managed to get its performers back on stage in front of a very limited audience and live streamed the event. As well as that, Michael Clark's company was supposed to be doing a residency at the Barbican, whereby there would be an exhibition of the history of Michael Clark's choreography and his company. And there would be live performances and there would be discussions and panels and all of that. The residency part has fallen by the wayside, but the exhibition continued. Well, maybe we should start with the Royal Opera House. Um, You say it's a bit of a beer moth just in terms of the size and and the kind of importance of the institution. Has it adapted its style for this broadcast? The Royal Ballet is sort of the Queen Mary of ballet companies here you know it it is just enormous and like one of these enormous ocean liners making a change takes forever you know the captain can move it the wheel two degrees starboard but you're not going to know about it probably for a week and a half first of all the, the the extraordinary contortions they had to go through just to get a performance on stage. They have, by chance, three soloist principal couples who are actually couples in real life and therefore were in lockdown together. They managed to put together another 14 people, seven couples, into bubbles so that they could work together. And they got to the stage in the last month or so where they could rehearse between 15 and 18 people at a time in the same room. But they couldn't actually get everybody on stage until a day or so before the performance. So just in logistic terms, what they did was magnificent. I'm really working against every element of dance, which is that you were in very close contact with other people. It must have it must have felt extraordinary for, for people who had been practicing in isolation in, in that sense to see it all finally come together. It must have been quite something to watch the the, the, the practices. I, I think the emotional level was extraordinary both for the performers and for the audience, both in the theatre. It was an invited audience of a handful of critics but mostly it was NHS care workers and their families who had been invited. So the connection between the audience and the dancers was extraordinary. And it came over on live stream. You could feel the sheer joy of these people, many of whom, let's not forget, have been training since they were five years old to do this one thing. And suddenly you're in a situation where it's impossible. I mean, you can do a little bit of it alone at home in front of Zoom, but it's not real. What happened, which was hugely moving, is that the finale of the evening was Kenneth McMillan's Elite Syncopations, which is to Scott Joplin. And it's just sheer joy. It's silly. It's fun. It's ridiculous. It's a party. 
And Kenneth Macmillan's widow, Deborah Macmillan, gave permission that instead of the, I don't know, probably two dozen people who normally perform in this piece and for whom it is choreographed, they could actually get the entire company on stage. So you had this huge mass of people dancing. And from the point of view of choreography, it was totally absurd. And from the point of view of emotion, it was just heartbreaking. It sounds that like even just hearing you describe it, it sounds it sounds like every, what, what everybody's craving. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you know, it was just the sheer joy of it. The, the sheer joy of the dancers being able to do what they have trained to do and the sheer joy of the audience responding to it and with the i think you said that with the dancers of course the screen performance is a is a different thing than when you're trying to project you know whether it's acting or singing or dancing when you're trying to project to the back of a big hall that's a very different thing than than having a camera very close did it did that always work well that is really the problem with live streaming that i think we're going to have to get to grips with there are two really core questions that need to be dealt with. One is the programming, because when you go to the theatre, your mind says, okay, I'm at the theatre. You're sitting in a chair, you can't get up in the middle, you're in the dark, so you're entirely focused on the light. You're not thinking, well, I'll just read a few pages of my books, or maybe I could put the um, laundry into the machine very quickly in this boring bit I don't enjoy. If you did, you'd be in big, big trouble. Well, (laughs) if you took your laundry to the theatre anyway. (laughs) So, you know, your, your focus is so different at home, even if you've got it in optimum conditions, even if you've live, you know, even if you're streaming it on a television or a big screen and it looks fabulous and it sounds fabulous, your attention is not the same. So, programming an evening is going to have to start to think about what that means and how the pacing needs to change, how the rhythm of an evening needs to be amended for this kind of divided attention that we all now find we have. The second thing is precisely, as you said, it is who are these people performing for? Because if you're performing for the people in front of you, it is a very different style. We're very used, for example, in the ballet world, when we see the Bolshoi Ballet, when they come over from Moscow, the Bolshoi is, oh, I don't know, three times the size of the Opera House. It's enormous. And Bolshoi dancers emote bigger, which in a smaller theatre actually looks rather absurd. Because they're used to a much bigger theatre and a much bigger canvas, yeah. It it looks like too much. It's what I've always privately called eyebrow dancing, you know, when you wiggle your eyebrows at at the audience. Do you think when you were talking about the logistics, because the logistics must have been, you know, incredibly complex and difficult, do you think they had to spend so much time and effort on logistics that maybe they weren't able to think hard enough about the format so they offered something quite traditional which as you say wasn't wasn't quite the thing it may be that the logistics took over it may be too that they felt that a gala structure would be a sort of celebratory way to proceed I understand the idea. I don't think it worked. Apart from anything else, uh, it was three hours long. And three hours is too long to sit in front of your computer screen. Especially when most people will have been sitting at their screens all day anyway for work. I mean, you you mentioned um, the Akram Khan Project's film, which sounds, I mean, it it sounds wonderful. I think these things, feature documentaries about institutions or troops can be done so well. You think of Pina, um, by Vin Vendors, for example, which I loved. But the, sil- the Silent Burn sounded good to a point, but then I must admit that when I read about two interpolated half-hour Zoom discussion panels 
my heart sank a bit. Well, my, my heart really sank when a little um, chat box popped up during the very long Zoom panel discussion that said, this is an edited extract. If you want the longer version, we're going oh, to post it later. Yeah. <laughs> In some ways, I felt so badly because it was actually very interesting. Well, and as you say, it's the it's their 20th anniversary, isn't it? And it's a very innovative company who've done some wonderful stuff. It's a it's a terrible shame about their about the timing. Was there any were there any parts of it because you said there was some of it that was very good? Any parts of it that you would particularly recommend since I made you sit through the whole thing? <laughs> <laughs> well, I I, I didn't feel forced and and you know, it, it, it was terrific. There was a lot of very good stuff. There were newly filmed, newly created solos for a number of the artists in the company, most of which were filmed in different outdoor locations. So in a ruined church, on a beach, on a mountainside. One was in a parking lot. But, you know, they were all very interesting visually. So those bits were terrific, and the, and those were nicely paced through the program, so that you did get some chat, some interview, a little bit of dancing, then some film of rehearsals, discussion of the various pieces that he'd done. But again, it was much too long. Three hours is too long, but it was never less than interesting. You wonder if they should you should do what they used to do in the um the pictures in the old days and halfway through they just say okay there's an intermission you now have to go and have a drink and talk to someone even if it's just in your kitchen go and do something else <laughs> because you as you say you never sit through 3 hours solid there's always there are always breaks and you know that that you can go off and do something else for a bit the metropolitan opera which has been doing very successful broadcasts now for a long time they film a live performance and at the performances interval, they have interviews with various sort of, either with singers or with backstage people or whatever. But if you're not interested, yeah, you can go off and you can get yourself a cup of coffee. And, and on the radio, they have that wonderful quiz, don't they? they? That's where they have the quiz on the radio, which is, I, I think, great fun. Um, it's, the, it's the most polite quiz in the whole world. And the most obscure. <laughs> yes. <laughs> And how about the the Michael Clark exhibition? As you said, that the live events were not able to be done, and you say in your piece, it's a it's a static representation of an art where movement is its primary definition. So, did did that work at all? It worked. I I was actually trying to think if I had ever been to an exhibition about a choreographer before, and I don't think I have. The only dance exhibitions in museums or galleries I can think of are exhibitions about Diaghilev. And of course, then it's about the scenery and the costumes and the music and the art. Michael Clark, it, it was very interesting because what really came through was his truly ferocious intelligence. You, you had this dancer who I understand from people who knew him then, was when he was a student at the Royal Ballet School, very clearly regarded as he is going to be the great dancer. And then, of course, he left before he graduated and Ballet Rombert decided classical dance was not for him. But in photographs, you can see this extraordinary physical presence, both in terms of charisma, but also in terms of just training and background. And yet he has this kind of devious little punk brain. So you have this fabulous four square presentation with kind of a baroque flourish on top of everything. And in the theater, when you watch him and his company, I think the baroque is, because it's so in your face, whether it's you know, the dancing inflatable penises or the bare bums or w whatever it is. This is so omnipresent that you don't really notice the structure and the shape as much. And that came through very strongly in the exhibition. So I, I found that as a great Clark admirer, I found that that 
deepened my admiration. It made me see things I hadn't seen before. Because the idea that when you're physically there, is actually because there's so much spectacle and so much look at this, are you shocked, sort of provocation, and, um, that, that actually that it, it's difficult to pay attention to the bones behind it and the intelligence behind it. it exactly. And, and there was an, a, a little display case, very small. I, I would have welcomed more on it, which was four pages of notes that he had written for one piece. And just the detail and the precision and calling on his own references. There, there was use of ballet terminology. There was use of Martha Graham technique terminology. You know, there was so much in there. You realized how, what a serious man he is. And of course, serious is the way he would least like to present himself. But I suppose, as you say, that's that. It's it, since since it was supposed to be um, supplemented with live performance and that kind of thing. That 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 was all they could do. Um, how do you think, Judith? How do you think live dance can or should um, evolve from here? Well, I I wonder if certainly for the next what year. We've got to imagine at least. At least, I think, yeah. We're talking about a few years, I think. Probably. I, I think companies really do have to focus on their art as it is going to be seen on a small square on somebody's desk. And, and I think in a way that's more helpful than thinking, how can we get people back into theatres? Because I think if you have this kind of divided audience, the way the Opera House did, you're not really serving either community well. You're always going to serve one at the expense of the other. In, in many ways, quite straightforwardly, I mean, the Royal Ballet did a beautiful film, which is available now on their website, of Jerome Robbins's other dances. And... It's gorgeous. You know, it, it, it is what it is in isolation. The fact that it's not a three-act ballet with, you know, 50 dancers helps. Though, you know, Swan Lake is going to be harder to do. But, a, you know, a chamber piece, that last half an hour has a handful or two of dancers. It looks fabulous. And, you know, you can actually see stuff that maybe on stage you miss. You can see detail. You can, of course, also go, wait a minute, he did what? That's spectacular. And you can move the cursor and you can go and look at it again. So you mean take the take what few positives there are from that and, and adapt, basically? I think so. And I think that what they've got to do is remove the mindset of let us recreate our art form precisely and just film it. You know, dance has had so many filmic innovations in the past few years. Um, you know, there, there, there's World Ballet Day where companies across the world film and live stream their classes. Most companies now film and stream rehearsals. I, I think all of these things are giving people insights into performance that they didn't have before. And I'm sure that with the right approach, you could meld these together to actually do something very interesting and see it as an opportunity instead to free themselves a little bit. Yeah, yeah, it's, it's yeah, it's about um, about them thinking differently. Let's see, um, let's see what happens, Judith. Perhaps we can uh, talk to you again in a while and see see where it's got to. Well, you know, I, I, we were also thrilled just to see some live performance again, or semi-live performance again that you know please just more is what we want <laughs> yes more more please in whatever form we please, can sir, may i have some more <laughs> many thanks for joining us judith thank you it's true it's true that more would obviously be lovely and and that that montage of people learning to dance the same routine in doncaster sounds wonderful but it's difficult to imagine you know there's a limit to how much can be done when the funding isn't there. I mean, earlier this week, there was, was it £1.5 billion package of loans and grants that the government announced for um, to support the arts? And it's gone to the major venues and companies, the Royal Opera House included, which is obviously also home to the Royal Ballet. 
but whether or not that will find its way down these kind of more innovative, innovative grassrootsy avenues remains to be seen. Yeah, all the big houses do outreach anyway, so I'm sure that that would happen. But you're right, um, it, it, it needs to get... Well, every, the point is, it's very simple, isn't it? Everybody needs help. Exactly. <laughs> so let's, let's hope that everybody gets some help and they can keep dancing. Still to come on the show, the poet and novelist Will Eaves has a new essay in the paper on Odysseus's constant making and unmaking of home and self. He will join us soon to tell us more. deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code PROGRAM. Welcome back to the TLS podcast. Last week, Lucy, drawing on that week's NB column in the paper, introduced probably many of us to an unfamiliar word, lalakesia, meaning the use of swearing to alleviate stress and frustration. The occasion was the publication of the lexicographer Susie Dent's latest book, Word Perfect, which, because of a quote-unquote printing error, had appeared in an earlier version, an unchecked draft. Our discussion prompted John Langridge, a regular listener of the podcast, to write in about his edition of Ulysses. I have a fine old edition of Joyce's Ulysses, he said, published by Bodley Head, a 1952 reprint of the 1936 or 37 edition in which page 264 is suddenly followed by page 249 to 264 again. It then continues from page 281 with the missing pages missing. Um, So that's 265 to 280, a whole 15 pages left out entirely. I've often wondered if this contributed, he says, to many readers' impressions of the great work's difficulty. Uh, It would seem especially cruel, I think, that the break, the gap, comes in the Sirens episode, which is so much about music and singing. Uh, This wasn't the only Ulysses-related blunder, though, was it, Lucy? No, but that's an absolute doozy. Imagine how confused you would be if you thought you were getting to grips with it and then it just repeated itself and then made no sense at all. Well, I feel you'd sort of just take it in your stride, wouldn't you? You'd just be like, oh, well, this, this, is, this is intentional 
which is obviously part of the problem. <laughs> you wouldn't know, like if Joyce knew about it, whether he'd have he'd have been absolutely furious or he'd be like, yeah, okay, how does that work? <laughs> Actually, I think probably he'd have been furious. And some of them he really, I mean, some of the, so, I mean, there were thousands of errors mm. in the first edition and then every edition after that added its own errors famously while correcting some of the others, but some of the errors or, you know, errors in inverted commas were intentional yes well that, I mean that, and that was the trouble and I, I was reading a bit about the the people typing it up because he wrote it he had to, obviously his eyesight was failing and he wrote it in a tiny hand I think single spaced and then annotated his own his own handwritten manuscript as it were and then I read something about how many on the when he got the proof corrections he then sent in I'm going to get the number wrong either 10 or a hundred thousand um you know new corrections and there was typists typing this out. And sometimes they sort of hyper-corrected. And sometimes, apparently, they thought it was too rude, so they just missed out the rude bits. And there were just all sorts of mistakes that went in there. And then new editions, as you say, which claimed to correct the mistakes, but then introduced other ones. There was a whole history, isn't there? Yeah, and certainly one edition, I think, in the 1930s, went out with a kind of a couple of pages of, of Joyce's own corrections, a couple of hundred ones that he had wished to point out. But I think some of those might have been introducing new errors as well. It's, I mean, it's, it's sort of all to be expected, I suppose, given the fraught circumstances in which the book was being published in, you know, so many different ways in different places and multiple manuscripts, as you say, people typing different versions, all the while, of course, trying to and failing to get around the New York Society for the suppression of vice. I mean, I suppose we'll, we'll, we'll never really know. There was, I mean, at the risk of wandering unprepared into legal battles now as I think we may have done last week over yeah, Sherlock Holmes <laughs> <laughs> oh and it is in fact it is East Dean where he retired by the way I was, oh, good. I was you were right yeah. and I was wrong <laughs> as usual but that is in fact where he tended to his bees um but yeah I mean no no certainly no discussion of the various editions and errors or not quite errors of Ulysses can be complete without a mention of Hans Walter Gabler's edition in the 1980s. I mean, that was so controversial, wasn't it? It was, but then, I mean, when it came out, it was absolutely hailed and, and, and everyone just thought it was wonderful. And uh, it was called, what's it called? It's called a critical and synoptic edition because the idea was that it brought all of the versions together and made the corrections and was the Ur text. And actually what was really useful with it as well is that it was lined. So you could easily refer to a particular phrase. Um, you could find it very easily. So that was very useful for, for scholars. But then people objected to that edition. And then there was a revised Garbler, wasn't there, a couple of years later? Yeah, I mean, what they did, I mean, I think some of his doings and undoings were, were pretty controversial. Uh, I think there were some leaps and because he was working from facsimile rather than the manuscripts themselves, he mistranscribed some of the things as well. So famously, some of the names were transcribed incorrectly in, into his own work. And I can't remember the name of the oh, one academic writing in the New York Review of Books, certainly really, really took John him, Kidd. Took him to it? task for this. I think it that's was John it, John Kidd, Kidd yeah. that's it. Yeah. yeah, really took him to task um, on, on this edition. And in the end, I mean, it was so controversial that his publisher, Gabler's publisher, Random House, ended up reverting to an earlier edition I mean which must have been heartbreak I mean you can only imagine the levels of Lalakesia involved <laughs> there but it's funny though because it wasn't completely so the people were still using it I was recommended to get one and it must have been around the year 2000 and, and that was recommended to me as the the copy to work from I think maybe now people have come to terms with the fact that there is not one text you know, unfortunately, we don't we don't have the one text that Joyce wanted us to have. So his old joke about the professors muddling over it for a hundred years has got a, a, an extra layer in it because they can also the professors can also fight over over editions and typos or you know um, it, there's certainly enough material there for another hundred years. Indeed, it all becomes quite meta. It is then with some relief that we turn now to, in a way, the original, original Ulysses. Ulysses being, of course, the Latinized version of the name Odysseus, Homer's hero. The parallels between Leopold Bloom's perambulations around Dublin and Odysseus's epic journey back to Ithaca have been much plucked at and scrutinized. This week, Will Eves turns his attention to something rather harder to pin down, the role and nature of memory in Homer's great poem of homecoming, or mostly really 
home going. Will Eves joins us on the line now. Hello, Will. Hello, hello. Nice to be here again. It's nice to have you, if not physically, then just just your voice. So many people say that. I know. I'm sure they, I'm sure they do. <laughs> Thank you for joining us, Will. That's all we've got time for. <laughs> Sorry. Oh dear. Um, Well, look, so this is a study of memory in the Odyssey. So I would like to ask you first, I would like to ask you when you first encountered the epic and what you made of it then. I first encountered it at school, I think, like a lot of people. And to my shame, it didn't make the impression on me as a young person that that perhaps it should have done. So the the time that it really became significant for me, I think, was about sort of 10 years ago when I found myself in Australia. So I was myself away from home and wrestling with that strange sort of betwixt and between feeling you have when you are a long way away from home on, on this planet, you know, is about as far as you can possibly be in the Antipodes. And your movement in space is also a sort of movement in time. You know, you're so far away that you take your own sort of little relativist pocket of time with you and you you find yourself wondering what life is like for people back home you know what what sort of time world are they in are they just left behind spatially or is, or is there you know are they part of your history now as well you sort of imagine them just in suspension in perpetuity yeah exactly so i then reread the odyssey while i was there and it made much more sense to me because that is the story of odysseus's homecoming and home going he's both a long way away from home, but he's also in this sort of state of suspended animation Mm. because he's he's telling stories in order to get closer to home, but it's never quite clear whether that closeness is really a material proximity, an actual nearing home in Ithaca, or whether it's something that's mental. And which is more important, whether it's actually more important to be back um, with Penelope and to reveal himself again, or whether the preparation for that is real in a different way and just as important. Mm. I, I suppose the, the suspended animation thing, it's not only the person away from home, but also as he, th- I think you mentioned this in the piece, when he thinks about home in Ithaca, he thinks about it in suspended animation, but it's not, of course, it's, it's not what he no. thinks it is, because all these terrible things are going on that he doesn't know about. That he doesn't know, exactly. Uh, and I think that's just, it's, it's a very... Um, it's quite a common experience. And one of the amazing things about the poem, and I think one could loosely say this is true of all great works of literature, is, is how um, under different circumstances it refreshes itself and becomes apt and true all over again. If you think about the way memory works, you know, we have a sort of common idea that it is at least in part about remembering historical facts and things that have happened and they are verifiable and you know, there's this place over there where things are happening and we may not know what's happening there now, but it really exists and it's over there. But at the same time, we know that memory, if we think about it, it's not like that because your memory is really a dynamic process. It's always something to do with getting the past or another place or a thing that you're retrieving, you know, the snapshot book of memory, getting that to fit your current circumstances. And, you, you know, we know this in a, in a common or garden way. When you, when you recall, you know, for the sake of entertaining your friends, some, I don't know, terrible job interview that went wrong or something that was you know, comically disastrous, and you, you, know, you tell the story, you tell the story, and it's partly true, it's partly a depositional record of something that happened, but it's also recreated to fit your current circumstances. And that has an extremely important effect on memory. It, that's, that's why it's dynamic. And it also, I mean, it relates to nostalgia as well, because of course, when you're most dissatisfied with your present, the present place and just the present moment is when you tend to feel those yearnings for another place, a place yeah, before, a place absolutely. where you once were, you know, happier, where you want more yourself, yeah. all of that sort of thing. Absolutely. And I think the the conclusion I came to in reading, you know, the Odyssey and, and in thinking about it again and writing this piece was that, as I think I say somewhere in the piece, that, you know, the, the that longing you're talking about, Thea, this reiterated longing, it brings you to this sort of awareness that, and this is what 
Odysseus encounters at the end of his journey in Ithaca that at the journey's end, the actual and the invented, the imaginary, the sort of retold are day and night. You know, they're, they're, they're both two sides of the same coin and they're complementary. You can't actually have one without the other. You point out a very, a very interesting sympathy between the state of being away from home and death. Mm. Odysseus, you say, is the most famous homecoming ghost in literature, which is a, just such a, a, a great way of thinking about it. Yeah, I mean, I think that there's a lot about death all the way through the Odyssey. And then, you know, towards the end, of course, he, he, he goes and talks to Tiresias and goes into the underworld. But it's, it's never quite certain what the stakes are for Odysseus at the end, or at least in my reading, it's not quite sure, because, of course, the prophecy is given that he will eventually go with his oar inland. You know where the, where the where the treasure is stored, and what Athena there is trying to say is that you know you you are taking your grave goods with you, so that final journey will be to a land that is real and not real. It's absolutely true that you will die, but the, you know you won't be conscious in the same way. You won't exist in the same way. So the symbol for that, I think, is. Now, I'm thinking of this in modern psychological terms. You, t- you take a useless implement like an oar inland. And I take that as meaning something about the transition from a material state of being to being sort of back in the universe, to being sort of atomistically dispersed. Which in a way he's doing through the whole book right up, you know, from the beginning until the end. He's sort of, you describe a pendulum swing yeah. of him sort of making and unmaking himself yeah. throughout the yeah. whole book. And that's, he's called that all the time. That's why he's the man of twists. And, and terms. he's also, he's making and unmaking himself quite specifically through narrative, isn't he? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. It's, um, you know, it, it seems very important that he does that. I mean, partly for kind of practical reasons that he's trying to ingratiate himself the whole time <laughs> with people, and not least Alcinous and, and, and Nausicaa. I never know if I've pronounced her name right. Is it is it Nausicaa, Nausicaa, Lucy? That's how, I, I don't know, I would say Nausicaa, but that's probably, probably Greek would be Nausicaa, wouldn't it? I was taught Nausicaa, but that's, that maybe that ah. was, maybe Nausicaa. that's unusual. <laughs> like, yeah, very good, like Ulrika Kaka. Very, very similar. Yeah, very similar. Um, so he's partly trying to ingratiate himself, but I think he is also trying to explain his life to himself. And, and again, that's the kind of pendulum swing, isn't it? There's something very practically important about telling stories, which is that, you know, you, we try to adjust ourselves to others, and that's an extremely important part of sort of societal belonging. But also we try to justify ourselves to ourselves. And I, I suppose that's what, you know, that, that's what writers and, and narrators are always doing. There's, there's the content of the thing you're trying to get across to your audience. And there's also the reason for you being there in the first place. And, and all epics seem absolutely to be those two stories at once. I and mean, it's certainly the case. Yeah, I think all epic, that, that's the binary, isn't it? The content of the story and the fact of telling a story. It's remarkable as well. Um, everything that you've spoken about, all of, all of the kind of the movements and you know, how the mental and the physical realms are mingling and mutually shaping each other. So Homer's throwing light on the nature of memory itself, but thousands of years later, science seems to back up this intuition so, so neatly. Yeah, I was inspired by, this comes into the piece a bit, I was, I was inspired by the, uh, well, a number of people, but I, I'm, uh, well, I mentioned the philosopher um, John Sutton, who actually wrote a very good piece on memory in the TLS about 15 years ago or so reviewing Alison Winter's book, Memory. And, you know, he, he it's, it's just an extremely good summary of the things we've been talking about, the cognitive neuroscientific um, debates on it. Uh, it's not that when we turn, as it were, to a memory, it's not that we leaf through the pages of an album and find these discrete things and then sort of, you know, summon them. Nor is it a complete... Or continuous dynamism where everything is constantly being reconstructed and absolutely remade the whole time because there's the common sense view that certain facts do exist is fine. You know, it's a, the, the past is not imperiled in that sense. But it is true that retrieval of the past is also constructive. 
Does that make sense? You know, that, you know, you are you are both getting a thing from the past and refashioning it in some and way. recreating it at the at the risk of really seeming to drag this down market. And I'm not doing it to be perverse. <laughs> I'm really not. But do you remember Inside Out, the Pixar film, which is all about the emotions inside yeah. someone's head? And that's all about memory. Uh, and I remember the review that we got of it, which was by a psychologist. And she said, thank goodness they're actually talking about memory the way we've been trying to talk about it for years is that you, the way you think about it, it's absolutely tinged with emotion and a process of retrieval. Yeah, 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 so totally. you can think that that's a sad memory in one context and then in another context, you could remember something happy about it and that changes even how you tell the story. Well, I mean, I think it's another, and another way of thinking about this, which, you know, people like um, Thomas Nagel and John Searle have been going on about for years is that, the apparently third person material world out there, as far as we perceive it, well, not just them, but Kant as well, the, the, the apparently objective world is, comes to us through perception and through the senses, but it also comes to us through emotion. And, and those emotions aren't necessarily, you know, grandstanding ones, but they are, and I think this is something that's very true of Odysseus, they are things that in here in the way we see the world, they are part of just ordinary subjectivity and they often catch us by surprise. So that when Odysseus, you know, meets the dog, Argos famously, it, it, it's, it's actually quite a short passage in the poem, but it, but it achieves an enormous importance because it's a moment of recognition. And recognition is powerful because the word means, you know, we are recognizing something. We're coming back to something that actually at some level we've always known. And I think that always in memory is very emotional. And it's about the first person point of view. And it's about how first person subjectivity can't be found in the third person world. So what is it? Mm. And of course, I mean, everything that he wants is that is that recognition. When he does get back to Ithaca, Penelope doesn't doesn't recognize. Well, him. he conceals himself. From that's, that's that's. Well, yeah. yes, I know, but he can't. Yeah. She, you know, she can't see yeah. through that in a way that you, you you would you would hope for. That would almost be the ultimate uh, proof of arrival if she could see through his disguise yeah. yes, to, the, it would to be. her husband. It's sort of I I don't know, but this is probably kind of a terrible thing to say. But I think I think some of the steam goes out of some of the sort of pressure goes out of the poem in that in, in that those last couple of books I, I'm sort of not so interested in all the firing the arrows through the axe heads and the sort of slaughtering of the suitors don't know what you feel Lucy but it's because you know you, you were a classicist and I it it, it, does, it seems to slightly um, lose its way there it, it, maybe all things do because when you're trying to come up with a denouement you know for a, a novel or a story it begins to get a bit mechanical you begin to sort of think oh I've got to put that over, and you know I've got to bring all these threads together uh, I know not... what you mean it's actually the bit with the dog is very moving when he just arrives terribly that, moving. that's very moving and then you're right things things very have moving. to be settled um but actually I think yeah. also all the business with the with the the maids and the killing them and things remind you oh god yeah this remind has... you that he's a warrior he's not a lovely guy oh no <laughs> it's awful isn't it just because they just because they've been having honestly it's it's such that bit is so puritan isn't it yeah. <laughs> just because they just because they're having a bit of fun with the suitors they get yeah. hanged or slaughtered yeah, yeah. or whatever and, and you're right that the, the Penelope thing there has to be a mechanism by which essentially they, they they have to get back together so it's a brilliant way to to do it well they're, they're, they're lovely yeah they're, i mean the, the thing about the bed is absolutely lovely the yeah olive tree that's an that's a, just a marvelous and very very moving and tender um thing but by that point he's already killed so many people <laughs> a bit late yeah if it wasn't him it'd be like oh who's that guy who came in and killed everyone yeah and of course it absolutely makes sense that it would come as a bit of a disappointment i mean the, the beautiful moment of the bed aside because it's exactly how it how how you encounter home when you yeah. you're in inverted commas yes. you return to yes. it. It's never what it, what you know the anticipation is everything the building and the that's true the, the two the, the two really moving scenes I think are the dog and then the the, the scene with his father Laertes where he sort of just you know just scrabbles at his face doesn't he you know when he sort of suddenly realizes who it is and it's 
and uh, I think Fagel says there's, there's some sort of sense about it's really well caught that, that his nostrils flare. He, he feels a sort of almost, I think I call it in the piece, it's a sort of citric moment. There's a sort of acid feeling in the nostrils. And that is so true when grief really catches up with you and you're just ab suddenly it's sort of incontinent grief and you're crying. You, something does happen in your nose, doesn't it? You do, you know, you, it's a very, very sharp sort of agonizing sensation. It's incredibly well caught. And, not, and I actually had not seen that caught before when I re-encountered the poem. I thought, my goodness me, over all those thousands of years. And that sort of the, the, the stench or, the, or the, the acid feeling of grief is amazing. Yes, it's like a helpless reaction like you would have if you had yeah. inhaled yeah, something. Yeah. You, you, you can't yeah. stop it. I was just going to just read a couple of lines that, so Odysseus at this point, he hasn't revealed himself yet to his father, um, but it's, he's playing the role and he says that, you know, he'd, <laughs> he says cruelly that he'd, he'd like to see Laertes' son, i.e. himself, again someday. And then, then um, Fagels' translation gives us this. A black cloud of grief came shrouding over Laertes, both hands clawing the ground for dirt and grime. He poured it over his grizzled head, sobbing in spasms. Odysseus's heart shuddered. A sudden twinge went shooting up through his nostrils, watching his deaf father struggle. He sprang toward him, kissed him, hugged him, crying, Father, I am your son, myself, the man you're seeking, home after 20 years on native ground at last. It's pretty good. <laughs> You'll give him that. It is, it I, think, is, I think we can agree that, good. can't we, Homer? Yeah. Pretty good. Five stars. Controversially. <laughs> Yes. Thumbs up. <laughs> On that incredibly highbrow note, I'm afraid we're going to have to end it. <laughs> we're suddenly going to have to stop the show, yes. <laughs> well, Eves, thank you so much for um, for joining us. It's a lovely essay. Um, thank you. And it's on the website, I think, so everyone can go and find it there. That is all we have time for this week. Our thanks to Judith Flanders and Will Eves. And a reminder that you'll find the articles discussed as well as too many others to list in this week's issue of the TLS, whether by picking up a paper copy or by going to our website, the-tls.co.uk, or indeed by downloading our app edition. You'll find all the details of those choices on the website too. Thank you for listening to this episode of the podcast produced by Ben Mitchell. Do join us again next week. Until then, from Lucy Dallas and from me, goodbye. fact a crocodile can't stick out its tongue also you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states united healthcare short-term insurance plans underwritten by golden rule insurance company offer flexible budget-friendly coverage for you learn more at uh1.com hey it's Paige desorbo from giggly squad high quality fashion without the price tag say hello to quince i'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.